When my kids were little, we lived within relatively easy driving distance of Disneyland. So a couple times a year we'd go down to Disneyland because we loved Disneyland. And there was just something about the whole package. I mean, Disney does it right. They don't have employees, they have cast members. Every person who's there is just a part of the magic. There are no weeds in their garden and everything matches and they all make, you know, pictures of Mickey or something, something like that. There's no rust anywhere. All the paint is perfect. You can't find garbage. Everything is spotlessly clean. I mean, it costs a million dollars to go, I know, but it, they do an amazing job there. And a little later, we decided to go to another large theme park that has many across the country. And I just had Disneyland in mind. And so we show up there with our kids in the summer. And the first thing I noticed was that every employee seemed to be some high school kid who was on summer break, which is fine. Glad to give them something to do, but they didn't have the same I'm a cast member sort of vibe. I noticed that it was kind of dingy. There was lots of different places that needed to be painted. Some of the rides were definitely cool, but I walked away going, only Disney is Disney. This other place was okay, but it was kind of a pale, it kind of paled in comparison to what Disney was trying to do. And there's lots of things in life that are like that. There is kind of like the gold standard, and then there's other things that try that don't quite make it. And we're going to look at one of those comparisons today between the real deal and something that is just kind of pales in comparison. And to do that, we're going to look at the famous uh, story in Luke chapter 2, beginning of 8, of the shepherds and the encounter with the angels. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. So this is a pretty familiar story, but what I want to do is pull out a couple of words and a couple of phrases that will allow us to do a little bit of a deeper dive into some aspects of it. So the first thing I want to talk about is don't be afraid. So in the larger story, when the angel comes to Mary, he says, don't be afraid. When the angel comes to Joseph, he says, don't be afraid. When the angel comes to the shepherd, he says, don't be afraid. Do you see a pattern here? Why is that such a big deal? Why does the angel almost always start with, don't be afraid? Why should they be afraid? 
Well, two things. One, a very scary angel is standing right in front of them. Angels in the Bible never look like this picture. That cute thing, that's an artist's rendition of angels. Biblical angels never look like that. In fact, if you want to do something really scary, Google biblically accurate angel. I don't know if they really are biblically accurate, but they're very, very scary. That's why I'm not showing you a picture. So there's a very scary angel that pops up in front of them out of nowhere. Number two, I think the angel says, don't be afraid because he wants to remind them and us by extension that God is at work. Now, most of us don't have a very scary angel standing in front of us, but most of us know that there are lots of scary things out there. We're afraid of what the diagnosis might be. We're afraid we'll run out of money when we're old. We're afraid that the war in Ukraine will spill out of control. We're afraid that we'll be alone in life. We'll be afraid that we can't keep up with the lifestyle of our friends. We're afraid the plane will fall out of the sky if we hit turbulence that's heavy enough. We're afraid for our kids and the choices that they're making, the things that might happen to them. We're afraid for our parents as they age and some of the things that occur physically and mentally to them. And the fears and the potential fears go on and on and on. And sometimes the fear is a little bit irrational, even though it feels very real to us, especially at two o'clock in the morning. Other times the fear is perfectly rational. So the message of the angel in the scriptures and to us is to remind us that God is at work, that we're not alone, that it's not just happenstance and chaos out there. So both of my kids are at major milestone points in their lives. There are transition periods where Allie's going back to school for a nursing degree and Rachel's starting a new job and it's all exciting, but there's also complications. There's also lots of details. There's all sorts of things that probably will go right, but there's all sorts of things that could go wrong. And so as I pray for my kids, it's really wonderful to remember that ultimately God's got this. And even if things don't turn out exactly like I had hoped or exactly like they had hoped or we'd pray for, I can trust that the plan of God for my kids is good. It's not up to chance. That's part of the message of Christmas. You don't have to be afraid because God's got this and God is present. It's always the first message of the angel. Don't be afraid. I'm here to reveal God's purpose. God sent me. Now, we might not all be afraid right now, but most of us can stand to be reminded that God's present in our lives and God is at work. So, don't be afraid. Next is this idea of good news. Okay, here's a fill-in-the-blank thing. This is the audience participation part of the sermon. The salvation of the United States began in fill-in-the-blank year when fill-in-the-blank name was elected president. What would you say? Well, I'm guessing that even the most partisan among us might balk at that statement. I mean, I hope you would anyway. And would go, wait a second. I've definite political beliefs, but no president is our salvation. Jesus is our salvation. Exactly. And that's exactly what's going on in the text. But we miss it in translation. Bear with me for a minute. 
So the angel comes and promises good news. The Greek word that's used there is euangelion, from where we get our word, as you can see by the slide, evangelism. Change the U to V, and there you go. To evangelize is to share the good news, the good news of the gospel. So gospel linguistically is good news, in addition to being actual good news. So in the culture of the Roman Empire at the time, the day when Caesar Augustus was born marked the beginning of the euangelia for the world. Augustus' birth was good news. It was the evangel for the world. At least that's what the imperial PR department wanted you to believe. But what type of good news are we talking about? The good news of Augustus and the good news of Jesus really begins this contrast that Luke is going to make between what Caesar offers and what Jesus offers. So Luke essentially in this account is saying, you've been told that Augustus being born is good news for the world, but that doesn't hold a candle to the good news of Jesus being born. Augustus's evangel is a really pale comparison to Jesus's evangel. Augustus being born might have been good news for some people, but it was really horrible news for other people. The good news of Jesus is good news for everybody. And that's the next point I want to make. The angel says that Jesus being born will bring joy for all people. Last week, we were with the Magi. They're highly educated, very wealthy people. They also happen to be foreigners. They were ethnically different. They came from another religious tradition. But the gospel went to them. The evangel was good news for them. And this is for free. Epiphany, or Orthodox Easter, celebrates the coming of the Magi to Bethlehem. And it's really the celebration of the inclusion of the Gentiles in the Gospels. So the, the Gentiles get their own holiday, celebrating that God loves them too. But that won't be on the test. So today, we're going to the opposite end of the spectrum. And that's intentional because shepherds were on the lowest rung of society. You've got the magi, wealthy, positioned, educated. You've got the shepherds. And nobody ever hoped that their daughter would come home and go, guess what, mom and dad? I'm in love with the shepherd. It's just not what you want. So you get the two of them. You have the magi and the shepherds and everything in between. Because the good news of the gospel is good news for the educated and also for the people whose training was on the job. The good news is for people with tons of resources and also people who are living paycheck to paycheck. The good news is for people who've been turned off by religion and for people who are deeply faithful. Before we even see Jesus in the story, we see that the whole world is invited to the event. And one of the things that we have to do is we have to remember that first, we were outsiders. We weren't insiders. And so the inclusion of the gospel is really great news for us. And we have to remember that at one point we were outsiders who were included. And that makes us need to be careful about how we view others. Because if we are the insiders now, we can't lose the memory that once we were outsiders and welcome others who are outsiders now too.
The next thing that I want to pick up on is this idea of Savior and Lord. In verse 11, it says, Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And here's where we get to the actual good news that the angels are talking about. A Savior has been born for us. A, a Savior is someone who can come in your life and fix something. It's someone who can rescue you out of a problem that you can't rescue yourself all out of. So let's say you're driving down I-5 or something like that, and it's more of a deserted stretch, maybe on the way to Portland or something like that, and you see this car pulled off over to the side, and maybe it's a, a mom with a couple of kids in it, or maybe it's an older couple or something, and you can see they've got a flat tire, and so you pull over to help. And you drag you know, you, the, everything out of the trunk and you pull out the spare and you take off the flat tire and you put on the spare for them, put everything back in the trunk and the mom with the kids or the older couple says, oh, you're my savior. The idea behind that is you did something for them they couldn't do for themselves. And that's really good news. And that's the idea behind Jesus being the savior. We need rescuing and we can't do it ourselves. Even the most competent of us occasionally needs help. Not only with just life things, but add in that little pesky detail that lots of times we really can't control who we are on the inside, what we think, what we do, our reactions. We need some help. And so we look for help. We look for salvation. We look for somebody to do something for us that we can't do for ourselves. Sometimes we look to other people. Maybe around election times we think, well, if only so-and-so gets elected, that'll save us. Or maybe we look closer to home and go, if only I could find the right relationship, that would make everything in my life okay. We look to other people to fix things for us. We look to other things to be our salvation, to fix things. If only I got the right job. If only I could get my career moving in the right direction. If only I landed this account. If only I made that sale. If only I became partner. Or maybe if only I had more time to do this thing. If, if there was, if only. We look towards all other sorts of people and all sorts of things to fix our lives, to transform us, to be a savior. But at core, what do we really think is going to transform our lives and make us closer to what we always dreamt that we would be? Because people will fail us and things never live up to their promises. And that's why Christmas is so great. Because it's the story of God coming among us with power. God coming as the Savior who can fix the problems that we have in our lives. Problems with broken relationships with one another, problems with disintegration in ourselves, problems with sin, problems between us and God, all sorts of things. And the promise of, of Christmas is this all-powerful God comes into our lives to be with us, to be Savior. The very first Christian confession was Jesus is Lord. And maybe you've seen this fish sign. It's got the fish on the outside and inside are these Greek letters uh, that stand for Yesu Christu Theo Huias Sotor. 
Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior. It was the very first Christian confession. And in fact, it got to the point where in persecutions, sometimes Christians would just draw the fish on the floor because ichthus, I-C-T-H-S, is the Greek word for fish. And that's why it became shorthand for Jesus is Lord and Savior. And why was that the first confession? And why was that what people drew? They, it became the first confession that Jesus is Lord because Augustus was referred to as Savior and Lord. So this, this line of the angels that we generally just leap right over the top of is really pretty subversive and gets back to that comparison that Luke is drawing between Augustus Caesar and Jesus. Caesar's PR is that he is Savior, Caesar is Lord, and Luke is saying Caesar isn't Lord and Savior, Jesus is Lord and Savior. And so you get that contrast. And ultimately, what Augustus is offering is a pale imitation of what Jesus is offering. So replace Augustus with whoever or whatever you're looking for, and it always will end up the same. It just doesn't pan out the way that you'd hoped. It's empty because governments and celebrities and influencers and jobs really can't change you or ultimately help you. And then, throughout this whole Christmas and Advent season, what is it that we've all been seeking, that we've been talking about? Well, I think it's peace. In verse 14, the angel says, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. So, back to Augustus. The time that they were all living in was referred to not only as the Pax Romana, Roman peace, but it was referred to more specifically as Pax Augusta, the peace that Augustus brings. So Augustus reigns for a really long time. He reigns from 27 BC until 14 AD. But the problem is that Pax Augusta, the peace that, August, uh, that Augustus promised, didn't really feel like peace. When the Roman legions were besieging the British Isles, there's a very famous statement that came out of a guy named Calgacus, who was one of the Scottish chieftains who was fighting in a very famous battle called Mons Grappius in Scotland in AD 84. And the Roman historian Tacitus reports what um, Calgacus says. He said, they rob, kill, and plunder, and deceivingly call it Roman rule. And where they make a desert, they call it peace. So that's what a lot of people felt about Augustus. That's what a lot of people felt about Rome. They just kill everything. They make a desolation, and they call that peace. But it's not peace at all. It didn't look like peace to the Scots. It looked like total devastation. And in fact, nobody ever hears from him ever again because they presume he was killed because Scotland then begins to be subjugated by Rome. They destroyed everything. That's what peace looked like that Augustus brought. And contrast that with the peace of the kingdom of God. The peace promised by the angels is a peace that brings wholeness, that brings safety, that brings absence of war, absence of anxiety. That's a whole lot different from what Augustus promises. The promise of peace that the angel says is delivered to the world by the baby in the Christmas cradle is far superior than any other peace that we could find. And this peace is promised to, this is the next line, on whom his favor rests. 
So Jesus' birth is good news. It's going to bring joy. Jesus is the real Savior, the real Lord, and Jesus brings peace. But who is this peace promised to? Well, everyone, we already talked about that just a few minutes ago. But there's something a little deeper that's going on here. This idea of people on whom God's favor rests, the Greek word there is, talks about somebody that God really likes, the favor of God. And this specific word is used two other places. The first place that it's used is at Jesus' baptism. Jesus is baptized, he comes up out of the water, and it says a, a dove descends on him, and there's a voice that comes from heaven, and he calls him my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That's the same word. I have favored him. It's the first place it's used. The second place it's used is a little bit more obscure. It comes in Luke chapter 12 where Jesus says to his disciples, fear not little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure. It is your father's favor, same word, to give you the kingdom. And so I think what Luke is hinting at here is that where Jesus is, where Jesus' followers are, because we are by extension Jesus to people, that's where the promised peace comes. It comes with the promise of the presence of the Holy Spirit. It comes through lives led in obedience to Jesus. And when we do those things, we help to embody the peace of the kingdom of God where it comes. Which is one reason why I think that we need to think of ourselves as being citizens of the world, not just primarily citizens of one particular country. Because our first loyalty is to the kingdom of God. And we have sisters, we have brothers in every nation of the world. And the need for the gospel, the need for the peace that Christ brings, is great in every nation of the world. And so if it's the church, if it's the community of Jesus followers who are the people who manifest the peace of God in the world, then we need to see ourselves as having an impact globally. Sometimes it's easy to just be very myopic and only think about us, our community, our country. And I think patriotism is great. I, I feel very blessed to be born where I was born. But nationalism, where the only thing you care about it in, is your tribe at the expense of everyone else, I think that's to be avoided. Because I think we need to see ourselves as being interconnected as Jesus followers with the plan and the purpose of God around the world. So when politics becomes divisive, when social issues threaten to pull us apart, when we're tempted to let secondary issues take our focus off of the main thing, we have to remember that the greatest news we have is not a certain form of government. The greatest news we have is not a particular party platform. The greatest news we have isn't a specific economic theory. It's not a particular lifestyle. It's that a baby was born in Bethlehem who is a savior, who is Christ the Lord, whose presence brings joy and peace. That's the best news that we have. That's the world transforming news that we have. Our job is to proclaim that there's a different reality, a more real reality, where sometimes that the, real, the reality that we have stock and trade every single day just pales in comparison to the real reality of what God is doing. And then our job is to live into that reality and model that reality. 
because there's just way too many people out there who are trying to make good news out of what isn't good and who are trying to find joy in what will never ultimately satisfy them. They're living in just a pale imitation. So let me ask you three questions. Where are you looking for peace and joy and hope this Christmas? Number two, what is one area of fear that you can give over to God? And number three, what is one thing you can do to bring Jesus' peace to someone this week? Thank you.